I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Penn State was in the Atlantic <laughs> Tired. Mark Whipple was a bad coach at UMass. Wired. Charlie Molnar was a bad coach at UMass. Inspired. <laughs> Kevin Morris was a bad coach at UMass. <laughs> My name is Curry Hicksagem in New York City. It is Christmas night. I am joined, Christmas night 2019, I'm joined, of course, by my producer in our nation's capital, the one, the only, Bennett Carroll. And we're going to start recording this for those of you who are going to listen later, or we're going to at least record parts of it. As I just noted to Bennett, I don't particularly feel like doing an episode that's not live tonight. I think a live episode would be more engaging. We could get some calls in. It would just be a fun, a fun one. Um, but I realize not everyone's joining. It's Christmas night. There are things at play. So we haven't done an episode since right after the Harvard game. It's been about two and a half, three weeks even. Um, nah, two and a half weeks. And in terms of UMass basketball, and by the way, the show, of course, as always, brought to you by our friends, the folks at College Movers, uh, world-class moving, stress-free in the Pioneer Valley and beyond, fivecollegemovers.com. Tell them we sent you. Check them out. Support someone who supports the show. They do a wonderful job. And, uh, yeah. So, in terms of actual UMass basketball news, um, what we've had since the last show is basically a loss to Yale in, a, in, in what may have actually been the best, because this is, of course, the, the slow time of the season, right? There's like two games, three games over 20-some-odd days. So they lose to Yale on December 11th, 86-83, if I recall. That was an overtime game. UMass should have won the basketball game. Absolutely blew the game. Most, Some would say most frustrating loss of the season, and yet I wouldn't, only because well-officiated game and both teams played extraordinarily well. A shot or two down Yale did, and so there's in the end you kind of have to tip your cap. Very good Yale team. Weirdly, I actually thought Yale was as good or better than Harvard, which was depressing because UMass lost by 35 to Harvard, and you quickly realize, oh, Harvard isn't that good. It's just UMass played that historically bad in that game, but they bounced back with a, a nice performance against Yale, and then 11 days later they blew out Maine at home. Now. They're 6-6. Six and six. They play a very good Akron team on the road on Monday. That, you know, on paper will probably be Akron minus 6.5, minus 7.5, something like that. And UMass has only won three games outside of Amherst in the Matt McCall tenure. That's I'm going to repeat that. UMass is not a good road team under Matt McCall. They beat Fairfield this year by two. They beat Providence last year by one, and they beat Dayton his first year by two. Those are the only three victories away from the friendly confines of the William D. Mullen Center for Matt McCall and co. So I don't think this Akron game is uh, anything that you can expect a W on. I, I do think we can compete. It'll be interesting to see. Akron has some good players, a really good point guard. Uh, name eludes me. But it's not about... Akron right now. It's about UMass and, you know, sort of squaring away some rough edges as they enter conference play. 
the biggest storylines right now for this young team, because I think the six and six is about where we expected them to be. The bigger storylines are the injuries and injury and transfer news. And that is threefold. First and foremost, for those of you who have not been paying attention, Cy Chapman, sophomore out of Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Twin Cities, St. You know, Paul area, is gone. He announced his decision to transfer uh, just prior to the main game. So Cy is out. We wish him well. He missed the first five games of this year when, when UMass was 5-0. and Promptly rejoined the team when they rattled off an 0 and six uh, stretch, and um, and that was uh, not a fault of his because they of course played six much more quality teams. Um, but he's gone. We don't really know why. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation, but really, all my sources are, are unusually tight-lipped on this one. Um, usually, I can work it out of people. Best I can do here is some hearsay from fans who heard from people that aren't even totally closely connected to the program, and I don't feel comfortable going with that, uh, although there were some interesting theories bandied about that check out a little bit with some things I kind of sense about this coaching staff and their their predilections for who they like on a roster. Sai so maybe not a but so so to put it mildly maybe it's not a great culture fit. I don't know. I don't want to denigrate a kid's name. I don't do that. I thought Sai had immense upside. He was very young. I think he was barely nineteen despite being a sophomore. And I think someday he will get his shit together fully and become a really big time contributor somewhere else. Um, I, I don't know if that was ever going to be at UMass based on you know, kind of the ups and downs of the last year and a half, but he's a monster athlete has showed some really impressive glimpses and I wish him well. It also hurts in the, in the, you know, in the near term, it hurts UMass's depth. Um, looks like folks are joining the live stream now. So we're going to, we're going to get to some of that soon, but I'm just doing the intro for those of us who are going to listen to the show, um, streaming. Um, and Bennett, feel free to hop in at any time, but I just want to get through the, the kind of, you know, basics of where we're at with the season and then a couple show notes, and then we'll, we'll kind of go to the, more improvisational, um, you know, stuff that folks are sending in on the live stream. So um, the other news that's very concerning is uh, TJ Weeks has now missed the last two games with a non-bas, what was being termed a non-basketball related, I think they're saying like stomach injury. That's not great because you, you sense, of course, that if it was... I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was, I think, appendicitis. My wife had that, and it's very painful. And it's, you know, I figured it was like something like that. And, you know, now I don't know because he missed two games. And so your leading scorer, you know, gone for two games, it's not great. And I'm, I'm in the mindset now of just assuming he's not ready to play right now because we would have heard if he was, or I, at least I think we would have. So what it comes down to, so so on the one, and then we're, of course, finally waiting for the news on Debaji Walker, the transfer from Cleveland State, who I think can be, and I don't say this lightly, a, I don't want to say sensational, but can be a terrific player here and can be an immediate contributor. Um, immediate as in give it a few games because he's set out like now 11 or 12, but uh, you get the idea. 
the deal there is the NCA was we were expecting a decision one way or the other by December 18th. Now we're hearing it may be pushed back toward the very end of the month. Now, I have heard from sources I trust that because the decision was we didn't get it when we were anticipating, that could be a good thing. It could mean that it's not an open and shut case and that the NCA is reviewing um, you know, the, the stuff anew. Whether or not that actually so let's say they clear him. Now you have to re- now the question becomes, well, is it worthwhile to play him having missed 12 or conceivably 13 games. I think if you get to the start of conference play and, it, and the decision hasn't been made, he's, you just have to declare this 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 a pipe dream and over. But let's say he's cleared prior to the Akron game or after the Akron game leading into the St. Louis game to start conference play on, I believe, January 5th. Bennett, should he play? Um, In other words, should he burn a, you know, a third right. of his in the eligibility of his college career to play immediately. I, it's you tough. Can, I, you can break it down in any way you want. Cause there's, I have a few ways of looking at this ethically. I'm torn because I don't want a kid to lose, you know, what is effectively look, if there's, if you play 30 games in a season plus one, now you're playing 31. So like 31 plus Let's say on average over four years, two A10 tournament games and a couple postseason games. If you're, you know, so let's add like 12. Let's be generous, add 12. So, in effect, in his UMass career, you would, let's, let's add like nine in three years or 10, and then 31 times three, 93. So, like 103. So 13, so 13 games out of 103 is what, like 11, 12%, something like that. So you're yeah. effectively squandering 11 or 12% of your career in order to play immediately. However, if, if TJ Weeks is in fact out, <laughs> you're getting automatically – minutes that you may not have gotten in quite that level of abundance had he been there. So you figure you're kind of like over the course of a season going to make back in a certain sense the three, or, three or four of those. What'd you say? The few, no, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm, 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 re, I'm finishing your sentence. Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's tough. It's it's that thing where if I think if the team is playing well, like they start to you know if they were picking it up much more than they are right now, I think you you think about it. But if you know the problem is the team is just kind of right there, like not good enough to be bad, not bad enough to be good right now with their record. But it's I would say not to burn it personally, but. I can understand both sides of it. So if I'm, I mean, the thing is though, like, let's be honest, if TJ's really out, you're down to, because the status of Colton Mitchell, I've heard he may be back for, for um, conference play, but it's not confirmed. Bugs is out for the year. Cy is gone. Um, And if, and and we're right now, I'm just going to assume TJ's out for a while because it's an unusual sort of injury dynamic there. So, Let's assume the worst case and that TJ is done for the year. So now you have on the roster 
without Debaji, you have eight scholarship players. Eight, is that right? Because you're two injured, Sai left, Debaji hasn't made it, there's no decision. Yeah, so you're down to eight. And CJ Jackson only just started playing against Maine. Very good in that game, by the way, raising perhaps some questions as to why he had not played like virtually at all in the in the first eleven. Um, I mean, I, I have my, I think I have pretty clear cut reasons as to why, but needless to say, he's going to have to play now. So you're down to eight scholarship players, seven of whom have you know meaningful experience. You don't really have a choice but to bring Debaji back if he if he's declared eligible. I, I I just don't think that's an option at this point, whether it's fair to the kid or not. I mean, it's. And look, it's the kid's call. It should be the kid's call. But first of all, I think he would play so much that it would justify it a little bit. And, you know, he'd be so integral without TJ there um, that I think you kind of you kind of may have to burn it. But, you know, I mean... It's tough. It's 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 meaningful basketball that he's losing in a college career. I mean, if you although like is it? I mean, we said 10 12% of the season of, of his career. Factor that into NBA terms. That's in an 82 game season that basically means he's he's only missing like, you know, uh 10 games, which really isn't that bad, right? Like if you think of it in NBA terms, yeah, that's it's a lot better than than the college soundings than third. That, if it's no, it has to be more than ten games because if it's thirteen in a no, college, no, because in a seat. No, I'm saying I'm saying for a career. Oh, okay, yeah. If if you put it over one year, like, yeah, like it's it, that's what I'm saying. So like it's it's thirteen games out of a likely uh, like total number of games at UMass that will be in the range of... I think we said 103 was the number we yeah, had. Yeah, 31 a year, 93. You hope for two post you know, two A-10 tournament games a year. Yeah. So that's like 97... That's that's 99, and then like maybe you get like a couple of NIT. So let's say like 101. So 13 out of 101. What's the math on that? Let's see. It so, is... Hold on. 12.8%, yeah. Yeah, so like... If you think about that in terms of like an NBA season, yeah, I mean it's not a proper analogy, but like you know, it's 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 not crazy. I mean, it's 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 a it's and it's it's basically a third. No, it's a little more than a third. It's like it's like let's be honest, it's forty percent of a college basketball season. I mean, it's it's not insignificant. you know, it's it's one in every, I don't know, nine games of your college career that you're you're giving up for nothing. Um, you know, I don't know. It's a, I'm a little torn. I'd be curious to see what what folks, um, you know, what folks think. Um, so feel free to jump in. So that so so that's the big decision for the coaching staff. Um, if he's not there and TJ Weeks is not there, the way this basketball team has to play has become almost 
disturbingly clear. Uh, there, there, there are no longer a great deal of options, right? I mean, the team has become, in the last two games, and by the way, they've both been pretty good performances. Uh, the team is what the team is, and the team is this. You have an all a potentially future or likely future, all everything, A-10 big man in Trey Mitchell, who can score from a whole number of places on the floor. And you have a third year lights out, but not always consistent outside threat in Carl Pierre. That's your offense. Uh, Sean East has proven himself adequate at times, damn near spectacular at times, freshman like and frustrating as a distributor. But he will be, especially with Colton, if Colton Mitchell does come back, you know, they will do what they need to do to get the ball in the hands of the two guys I just mentioned. The challenge is teams are going to double team Trey. And if he kicks it out to Carl and Carl's having an off night or Carl's defended well and his shots are a bit more contested, we're in trouble. We're in real trouble against pretty much everyone in this league. Um, it's a much improved Atlantic 10. We'll talk about that with friend of the show and A10 uh, sort of writer Stu Ludicky uh, coming up on a future episode in the next week and change. But the reality is that is going to be a uh, supremely difficult challenge if if one of those guys is off, basically. Uh, and if both of those guys are off, you're just not going to win a game. I mean, you're just probably not going to win a basketball game if both those guys are off under the scenario I'm describing. You don't have a third. See, the thing is, TJ Weeks, and frankly, I think maybe Devaji Walker, um, those guys can lead an offense. You know, they, they can be like we've seen already this year. TJ was the leading scorer on the team. I mean, so on a night if Carl wasn't shooting – um, you know, you have a legitimate another option in in weeks, and without him, um, you know, you you're you're relying on two guys. Um, you know, Keon and and um, and Deba- and uh, Dejiri are really solid defensively and give you good energy, but those guys aren't going to take over a game offensively. You're going to need uh, Keon to return to form from deep in the manner in which he was late last season. And you're going to need Samba to get some of the mojo back that he had in the early season, just just so that you have another contributor who can, you know, do different things offensively. Sean East is going to have nights where he scores some points, and he's got to continue to hit open shots. Um, but again, if if you're relying on Sean East to go out and get you 22, 23 points against St. Bonaventure on the road, like that's that's the chances of that happening with any sort of uh, you know, consistency is just is just not it's just not likely. So the reality is, if you don't get Debaji healthy or uh, or rather eligible, and you don't get TJ uh, back from whatever this injury is, it's going to be uh, a long A ten slate. There's other than Fordham and kind of GW and kind of St. Joe's and kind of LaSalle. There's really no bad teams in the league. I mean, there's like, there's like nine 
by this year's college basketball standards, good teams in the league. And three or four really good teams. And, and then Dayton, who's just in a league of its own. So, you know, we, we don't want, we need to go through all the schedule right now. But that's where the team is at. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens to that Akron game. I think it will be revealing just in the sense that I think they need a little bit of – it would be a big win in terms of just giving the guys confidence in terms of winning on the road and getting some momentum entering conference play. Because as we've talked about on the show since the summer, the start of conference play is very similar to the basically games six through like 11 in non-conference play where they had all their tough – a lot of their tough games. And if a young team takes like four or five losses out of the gate – I just don't even really want to ponder what happens at that point. Like, I don't want to ponder the potential toxicity that could envelop the fan base. None of which is particularly justified if you're playing, you know, if you've got seven guys, and you know, four or five of them are freshmen, like, what are you going to do? But it's it still would be ugly. But there are some winnable games, and if you compete well in the outset of A-10 play and steal that LaSalle game early – like, there's a stretch after the first five where, like, a lot of your win- very winnable games come. And so I think we're going to learn, again, a great deal about this group in the next couple weeks, as we have all year. It's been a fun year in some ways. It's been frustrating in others. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll learn a lot more in the next week and change. And I think this time off for the team is probably a good thing overall. So that's where the team is at. Bennett, we haven't been together on this program for months. And... <laughs> What I wanted to, to chat with you about briefly is we have to do – we have to select the uh, winning uh, logo for the show. This goes back now at least a month, probably six to eight weeks. Uh, we kind of like – I then had – where my wife then gave birth to our kid and like we just sort of didn't have that episode where we like locked in together and selected it. Now, I'm going to just – I forget the rules. I stipulated several rules at the outset, and I probably should follow those for legal or contractual reasons. But what happened late in the process, and I hope you'll forgive me uh, for violating the norms of the of the – you know, the, the, the important sanctified process of um, logo selection, is that Stu Ludicky, friend of the pod – his wife out in Denver, Whitney, came in like maybe a few days or a week even past deadline with what I felt was just a clear-cut winner, winner, chicken dinner, banger, fuego, fire, gorgeous, dynamic, graphic design is my passion logo. Just a sensational, like, blew everybody else out of the water. Really wasn't even close. And, you know, shouts to Chad Miller and and some of the regulars who who sent some really nice stuff that were getting a lot of likes on Facebook and Twitter, which was going to be part of the calculus we we were employing for, um, for determining the winner. But... Whitney just kind of blew everybody out of the water and uh, you know, I don't really know what I can say. And there is, there is skin in the game here because the winner gets courtside seats courtesy of five college movers, friend and sponsor of the show um, to a game of their choosing. So we actually have to choose this before we get into conference play. 
and I feel badly for violating the rules, but I'm like, well, I mean, you know, that one's the best. So what, where, where do you come down on this, Bennett? Um, I guess it's different because we never really – we didn't do it. Uh, the only other question I have, which I'm, I'm not sure of, is were, did anyone else come in after the deadline? Um, well, we kept extending the deadline kind of, and then like, we like sort of stopped extending the deadline and we're like, Oh, well, we're going to talk about it on our next show together. And so, and then we never had the next show together. So like, so she dropped in kind of like before that. So like, it was still in my opinion, in the spirit of the competition. And she kind of gave like a, like, sorry if I'm late kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it was probably a little bit late, but, like, we were – I feel like – and maybe I'm betting the rules. So – but I do feel like it was fairly open-ended, you know? Like, I extended it once or twice, and, like, we didn't get to that show, and we were always just looking for the – and, like, look, like, hers just blew the others out of the – do you think on the merits that hers is the best, by the way? Uh yeah, I really like hers. I, I I don't think I saw it when it got tweeted. I just went out and retweeted it, and it it is it's really good. So let let's actually go. I'm gonna find her tweet, and we can actually go back and like we'll we'll hash out and see what's fair here. Um, like I said, I ju- I just retweeted it. Um, right. So like, it, but I'm looking at the original thread. Oh, because okay, oh, like okay. yeah. So she's okay. So she's like, if you haven't already picked a logo for the podcast, I tried my hand at making one for you. That was on the 23rd of November and everybody was loving it. Like it was like, there was no, um, there's really no dispute on that. And then let's just try to find, I'm trying to find the pot, our podcast logo. Like, like I'm trying to find the thread. Yeah, I'm looking for it. This might be edited on the non-live show, but um, let's see. I'm looking up, like, podcast logo Curry Hicks. Yeah, that's what I'm going through. Uh, The original one on October 30th, you had the deadline set for Monday. Then I changed that. Yeah, I think you said – see if I can find it this way. She came in three weeks after the start, but um, okay, let's see. Mm. Here we go. Uh, the 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 thread for that was November eighteenth. Was the thread with all the actual logos? Okay, so I said I said at that point. We're overdue for selecting the winner of the podcast logo contest. This is over a month ago. With the winner getting a pair of courtside seats to a UMass home game of their choosing, courtesy of five college movers. I'm going to post several options below. So I I sort of accumulated all the ones that have been submitted up to that point. The one with the most likes, and I did say in stars, may win. Yeah. And then I, then I said again, I haven't given this process much thought, but I figure I'll have a 20% share. 
the Bennett K will have a 20% share and the audience vote will be broken down proportionally. I don't even know what the fuck that means. I'll figure <laughs> out details later. More likes equals higher proportional share. So, so what you, I'll what I'll okay. say is I'm I'm reading the chat and uh, Johnny Hammersticks is in there and does say if they can make it from Denver for our game we should give it to them. Well, that's definitely you know should be a factor in like props, but you know gotta stick to the rules. Now I gotta say the one I posted of me where my face is covered is like actually maybe my favorite and it's actually <laughs> really good, but it's such a deep cut like you got to know you got to know the origins of that story for those of you who even like diehards of the show don't necessarily recall that one night last thanksgiving like thanksgiving 2018 that weekend i was home at my folks house in western mass with my buddy and i was like i was like fired up after the nevada game or before the nevada game that was a big game that year nevada was like 10th in the country and i was like I want to do a show, but I don't want to show my face. So I found my dad's, like, he has, like, one of those, like, Russian-style hats, like, winter hats. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the round ones yeah. that are, like, like a Hasidic rabbi would wear. I was going to say, the uh, yeah, the big fur. Yeah. But, like, Hasidic rabbi or, like, Greek Orthodox priest. Like, it's, like, a, it's just, like, <laughs> or, like, like, yeah. So, and then I took a sweater or no, no, I took a scarf and just wrapped it over my face. So it's a fucking hilarious image and did a live show for like 80 viewers for all of 10 minutes. And so anyone who caught it was like, made it try to turn like Sloven and some of the regulars who listen to the show, like tried to like turn it into like a meme. So lo and behold, like a year and change later, uh, I forget his, that kid's name, Ahmad Arshad, I think like, oh, what's his name? Not I know who you're talking. I'm. Ta- I know who you're talking about. I can't think of his what name is though. Only, such a good dude, but uh, I'm literally likening him to like Ahmad Rashad, the former NBC. <laughs> That's not a name. It might be a. Is there an Abdullah in there? I think it's. A, it might. I think Abdullah Rashad sounds right. Abdullah Rashad. He lives out in Minnesota. Great dude. Like listens to the show. He came in with a clean looking logo. That's just my favorite. That that's that image that says the UMass Basketball Podcast in like just the right size caps and presented by five college members inside. Like it's actually really good. I'm surprised it only got ten likes because people just didn't know the origins of the image. And if they did, I'm convinced more would have picked it. But I still think that like we are trying to expand the audience of the show, and that's almost too deep a cut. Uh, so didn't quite get the love. So then the other ones that were, like, getting a lot of love were one from Stats McKinney, friend of the show, UMass Basketball Podcast, where it's, like, it's actually a very clean, kind of cool-looking, like, cartoon drawing where it's, like, it's five college – it's a five college movers truck with, like, um, various UMass, like, trophies and weird shit inside it, and it's cool. Very just cool, like, sketch. I have so much – anyone who can draw to me is, like, a wizard. Like, it's just an amazing talent, and I don't know how people do it. So I always respect it. So that got 33 likes. It was solid. Um, I liked it, I believe. And then Chad Miller, friend of the show – I think it was Chad who submitted it – submitted this logo of, like, 
it was it's basically a picture of the Curry Hicks cage with I think Dr. J is shooting it. No, it might be like pre Doctor. Yeah, I think it might be Dr. J. It looks like I think it's thirty two. That was his number too. Yeah. So, and it's cool, but like I love it. I do really like it. It got the most likes, but I'm not gonna lie. It's like it's a little messy. I I I feel so bad saying that because whatever I would come up with would be atrocious. But it's just a little bit – it's not quite clean enough. You know what I'm saying? Plus, there may be, like, fair use issues. Are we allowed to use that photo? I don't know. Um, don't really want to get in trouble. So, like, I, you never know. People get weird with those things. Uh, not that we were big enough to merit that, but you just never know. So that was, like, the kind of runaway winner at 49 – and then we don't say anything for five days because we haven't had an episode. And then Whitney comes in from Denver from the top rope. Oh, the other one that was really good, got 32 likes. I forget who submitted it, was the one – it's almost like a marquee. It looks like a marquee. It says UMass Basketball Podcast featuring Curry Hicks Sage and Bennett Carroll presented by. And it's a picture of Sean East like running after he hit that shot. That was actually really dope. I actually – that might have like – in in a certain way like in terms of like if someone's searching for this podcast like oh it's clear like this is what it's about that was really solid um but then somebody made the point like you actually could get in trouble because it's like we don't have permission at all to use those images and they're recent um so those were presented and then whitney came from the top rope with just the absolute fuego and i think reading through this and having hashed this out for an extended period of time, far too long, I think Bennett, my twenty percent share is going to her, and I think it's still that's still within the rules. Um, who's your twenty percent share going to? It, yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I actually I really liked uh, Chad's design. I I my immediate thought was that, and then I don't know who did the one. In that thread below it, uh, it didn't get a lot of likes, but I thought it was very simple and very clever. Uh, that was like the the talking the talk bubble with the basketball in it. Talk bubble with the basketball in it. I don't remember that one. Uh, oh yeah, that was solid. That was solid. So I like that one. Uh, not as much as everyone. <laughs> not a, or more than everyone else did, I guess. See, the thing about Whitney's that just like makes it like next level is like. She has, like, the microphone, but the top of the microphone is a basketball. I mean, that's just, like, there was, like, legitimate thought that went into that and from a design standpoint. It's clean. Like, Chad's dope from, like, kind of an image standpoint and just, like, putting cool shit together. But this Whitney one is, like, there's, like, and even just the placement of the logo, perfect. You know what I mean? Like, just, yeah, it's, like, not too big. It's just, like... So that's my vote. It got 21 likes, which is less than half of the 40. Well, let's see. I don't think I liked it, so I'm liking it. So, Bennett, you should well, like it. I did. I did. But the other thing I'll also say, it wasn't with the other ones. But rem- remember these two things. Um, one, it wasn't in that thread, so it didn't get the same, like, viral bounce off that it happens sure. but then also she just tweeted at you she didn't even do the dot before so only people that follow you 
and her could like it. Oh, I th- well, I did. I think I quote tweeted it, though. All right. So that helps a little bit. But like, no, just fair. by definition, I think I think it gets a little bit less. But even so, the other likes are sufficiently spread out such that our 40 percent couldn't be overcome by um, by like 49 for Chad and much respect for Chad. If there's some extra tickets laying around, you know, that five colleges wants to part with, like we will happily get, and I, I'll give you my season tickets for a game if you want, like no problem. But, um, you know, I think the 40% from us does not, is not like proportionately, over, you know, lose out to 49 likes for Chad because other people, there was like 32 for someone else. So if you, if you spread that out, Chad might get 20%, but it's not, you know what I'm saying? It's not, it's yeah. not 60%. Um, it's not 41%. So Whitney and Stu, you guys are the winner. I mean, look, Whitney, you're the winner. Stu, I love you, but like, <laughs> these are your tickets. If you don't want to bring your husband, like, I'm not, I'm not here to adjudicate your marriage. Like do what you want to do. They're your tickets and we will, you know, hit us on DM and we'll, we'll figure it out uh, with five, with the fine folks at five college movers. So that was the show note I wanted to get through. And then we already hit the kind of where the team is at note. The, the next big thing that I've been meaning to get to, and I think that the folks who are listening live should, should hop in here. Um, should basically is basically this question of uh, the top 10 moments of both the year and of the decade and for both UMass Twitter and for UMass Athletics. Now, they're not always the same. So I want to try to with the, at the risk of having a 17 hour show, let's try to structure it a little bit more efficiently. Let's try to get it down to the top five for the year on UMass Twitter, the top five, and then do the top 10 for the decade uh, of UMass athletics. Because that sort of merges the, the, the kind of polls that this show represents, which is a combination of legitimate UMass athletics banter and just asinine, uh, fun UMass Twitter banter and the two obviously have an immense amount of crossover but there's also distinctions for sure because umass twitter you know rewards memes and umass athletics banter rewards at least a modicum of insight into umass athletics itself so does that sound does that sound good bennett yeah uh, i will just say our, our most of the live audience has dipped at this point so That's how much we're going to throw to them is different, but I'll I'll try to get as to keep up with all that. All right. So top five. Uh, you well, so let's do UMass athletics and hash that out. What did I say? Top five or top ten for this year? Top five for the decade? Top ten. All right. For this year? No, this year we're just doing UMass Twitter. Top five. Okay. Yeah. So. Let's just go through some of them. I mean, actually, no. Let, let's let's do UMass Athletics first um, because I got a lot of contributions on that and on Twitter when I posted them posted it. 
You know, I think it's pretty clear cut, even though this is a UMass basketball podcast, that the seminal moment of the last decade, so 2010 through 2019, was the hockey. I don't know if you want to characterize it as like the run or if you want to point to a specific moment. Obviously, the Del Gaizo goal would have been number one for like, but it's kind of to me, it's kind of the run in general. Yeah, I yes. think I think you could go from because you could also go reaching the number one ranking for the first year, re, you know, right. doing all. There are three or four different ways you can hit it, I think. But I think the run makes the most sense. Yeah. OK, so at this point, like we've kind of given it away and everybody kind of knew that. Is there any chance you could? I mean, there, there's. Is there even a chance that anything else could could be it? Um, like the UMass basketball that got them back to the tournament in 2014. You know, that's very significant. But the end of that season, and I, I hate to bring it up, but we've never gone over it at length on this show, but. They opened the year 16 and one. They ended the year eight and eight and they got blown out in the first round of the tournament and didn't and, and lost in the quarterfinals of the Atlantic 10 tournament. So there wasn't, there wasn't, it, it never, you know, so then with, when you think back on that season, weirdly, I don't classify the season. I classify a couple of moments, namely that VCU win at the Mullen Center because it was so electric and it was like the magic is back that that was the closest it ever got to feeling like, you know, it, it had the kind of grandeur that the hockey run had. But because it never culminated in a, a deep run, like even if they had won the Atlantic 10 and then got blown out in the in the um, in the first round of, of the first round. Mm-hmm. They'd won at Barclays, and you're cutting down nets at Barclays for the first time in 18 years. You know, winning an Atlantic 10 tournament. That, like, there's a case that for the UMass Nation, like that. That's and and some people won't like this, but that's as significant, if not more, than the hockey run. Just because the reality is, you know, basketball in March in America just garners so much more buzz than hockey does. So, you know, I know I know some people won't like that, but I, I the reality is it didn't happen. So we don't have to speculate. So instead, you're left with moments from that year. And the ones that have been bandied about the most were the road win at GW, which was great because it kind of solidified their tournament spot and the home win against VCU in front of like a bedlam crowd at, at um, the Mullen Center. And, you know, just it, it was a. Friday night game, ESPN game, people waving towels, five college mover towels, in fact. Um, and so that those were the two like moments. Some people have thrown out around uh, the Providence buzzer beater with Derek Gordon that year. Um, but those were the two. So we'll we'll kind of put those on the side and we'll and we'll we'll see where they where they land. Um the football decade was end to end horrid just just a an unmitigated disaster that that only grew worse somehow this was of course the decade of 
the first decade of, of, of FBS football, which began with Charlie Molnar in 2012. So we've had eight years now, eight seasons. Um, two disasters under Molnar. Four, you know, oh, wait, did Whipple get five years? Yeah, yeah. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Holy shit, yeah. Boy, that's gone fast. So, Bennett, you you entered UMass their last year of FCS. Yeah. So you've basically only known the FBS era. And that last season of FCS, I want to say they were like five and seven. They weren't very yeah, good. They, they started hot, if I recall correctly, and then fell apart. I, part. Um, and then the real fun part is I didn't see any games at UMass for two of the four years I was there either. Because they went yeah. to Gillette for all the games. Did you go to Gillette ever? Uh, just to call a couple games, never to just see it. So what's interesting is there's an argument to be made that the three coaches – I mean, so 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 the tendency in part because – you know, at least on this show, because I've I've emphasized it, is to talk about the disastrous nature of the Charlie Molnar tenure. People, you know, it's kind of this is kind of like a the internet meme of you know, like tired, wired, you know, like inspired, tired. Mark Whipple was a bad coach at UMass. Wired. Charlie Molnar was a bad coach at UMass. Inspired. <laughs> Kevin Morris was a bad coach at UMass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, by the way, that could go in the intro to the show. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say that that was. I'm, good. Gonna, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull that. No problem. Um, Kevin Morris, we let him off the hook too easily because he was there in basically the final years of F, uh, FBS and. See excuse me, FCS, he inherited a very good program from Don Brown. He might have had a bad year or so, but basically inherited a good program. And the one defense was, or so I've heard, was that, like, there was for a moment, and I'd love to, like, talk to Bob McGovern or some of the regulars who covered this stuff. Um, the word I heard in, in retrospect, you know, looking back, was that after the 08 recession, and the uncertain landscape of college football. I think there was some realignment stuff around that time that UMass football was basically broke. They weren't FBS yet. And there was zero commitment to like fund them at any sort of level. Like I heard Kevin Morris's salary at one point when he got hired and he was an assistant, not even a very good assistant. He was a frustrating offensive coordinator, if I recall right. Heard he got was getting paid 150 grand. Great salary if you're a regular guy, but like, you know, a flagship university, like there there can't be more than I mean, one or two state flagship universities that was paying an FBS or FCS or FBS football coach 150K. Like basically they had no money. And like he was the only guy who would take the job to some degree. That's the maybe defense that his camp put out there. I really don't know. I'd have to go back and look at that. But regardless, he was, by all accounts, just an arrogant fuck. And he thought he was better than everyone. 
He was completely uninspiring in his post-game pressers consistently. I never knew the guy. I had never had any interaction with him. I never, you know, and, and again, I, I'm not a serious UMass football fan, so it's it's just never, I've never, I think Molnar, I got, like Molnar fascinated me from like a, is the word characterological? Like from just <laughs> a character. Like he, like when I look at a, place or a person or whatever like i kind of look at like, like who is this guy in the novel you know what i mean and like yeah. molnar had an almost cinematic quality to his absurdity like there was there was like he was a certain sort of prototype that if you were making a movie about a bad first time division one college football coach like he would be from central casting like you would call him you would put him you would put him up there like now, even if he's not an actor, like it's just like, that's the dude, you know, like just had every fucking phony one liner, no depth. And yet was effective enough to like sort of sell you initially until you were like, whoa, 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 what the fuck's going on here? Kevin Morris was a different breed a little bit. He went to Williams College. He had a little bit of like an elite affect and and he carried himself as if he was a little bit better than you and it was a different type of dickhead like molnar was there like if you look back on molnar there's almost like a sort of absurdity to it like there's almost a kind of sadness there's like he's almost a tragic figure whereas like morris strikes you as kind of the um mean kid at like a fancy prep school who's like slapping kids with towels you know like no he may not be a towel slapper let me let me let me clarify that was like that's like george w bush in in like at phillips andover high school you know like that kind of morris was like a little bit more like you know who morris was he was umass's brett kavanaugh uh supreme court justice brett kavanaugh kind of like wanted to be the cool kid in prep school but and like played sports but like wasn't even like that cool but was like still a dick because he went to prep school um and i don't really care what your politics are but like it's pretty clear that's who brett kavanaugh was in high school if you read those like remember who was he like with, with like squeegee and all those fucking kids in high school like he was yeah kevin mars like look where look up where kevin mars went to high school i bet you he went to some private school and yeah, look that up if you could find that. I'm I would. pulling it up. Um, it does not say where he went. Uh, he's currently the offensive coordinator at Mo- or no, he's currently the offensive coordinator at Penn. So really? uh, perfect, perfect. And see, see, even that is a is a, is is revelatory. Kevin Morris is a walking commentary about social class in America, and let me clarify why. To have had as disastrous a career as a head coach as he did, and and frankly, as uninspiring a career as he did as a coordinator, and yet still be sort of connected enough in the coaching fraternity and regarded as intelligent because of where he went to college 30 years ago. And maybe I'm overstating it. I don't know the guy. But to be the coordinator at an Ivy League school still – if you were a guy who was a great up-and-comer at 
central Connecticut state and you got, and you know, that's where you went to college and you got a nice, you got an opportunity somewhere or whatever. I have a hard time believing that like after the lack of success that Kevin Morris had, if you were the same guy from central Connecticut state, you would end up at fucking Penn, you know, as your fallback job. Cause that's a good job. Like an Ivy league coordinator gig is a good job in the context of college football where there's a fucking bazillion programs and like half of them have volunteer assistants and shit like to be at a stable you know funded ivy league program as a coordinator after like the kind of failure he had pretty good gig maybe i'm overstating it i mean coach at harvard he went to springfield college and if he fell off i'm sure he'd have a nice coordinator gig but he actually had sustained success so that's my whole point is like do you have a career record from morris uh, yeah, I just had it. Hang on one second. He was... Sorry, I had his Wikipedia page pulled up and then switched to something else with him. He... It is not one to load. He... Career 16 and 17. He went 5 and 6, 6 and 5, 5 and 6. Yeah. When was he coordinator at UMass? Like, give me, give me his other... The f- he was coordinator at UMass from 04 to 08. So those teams were good, but they were good because of Don Brown. So I guess, all right, like maybe I'm being hard on Kevin Morris. Like the thing is, <clears throat> if he was f- there from 04 to 08, so he came right after Whipple left and Don Brown took over. And those teams were defined by anyone who watched that era of UMass football. Because the 06 team was one of the best in program history. They were defined by Don Brown's defense. Like, nobody looks back and is like, like, you have um, Liam Cohn was the quarterback from 05. So he was in that stretch, yeah. 08. So he played under Morris. I would actually like to talk to Kevin. Like, if Liam Cohn tells me that Kevin Morris was a fantastic coordinator. <clears throat> I will change my tune because the guy just seemed like a dick and the local press corps that I've talked to uh, or people just that were around the program at that time, you know, they basically have affirmed that he was a total dick. And uh, so maybe, I don't know. I just, the guy just rubbed me the wrong way. I don't know how we went down. Oh, we were, so we, this was all back going back to our top moments. So UMass football, no moments, uh, <laughs> no moments. <laughs> They almost beat Michigan in 2010. And I mean, I guess Victor Cruz, Victor Cruz's NFL success, you could like sort of. Oh, put that. If we're going to do that, I, Andy Isabella's senior year is probably. Yeah, right. And, and, and like, and don't overlook Tajay Sharp, by the way, because like <laughs> he was fantastic and broke all the records and then had them broken by Andy Isabella. But like, and he was playing under Molnar for two years. I mean, I mean, look, the, the, the win over Appalachian state at home was like really good. And the, the win on the road against BYU was good. And, and Whipple for a moment there, you know, there was some significance, but if you're talking, if, 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 if a win over Appalachian state, and it wasn't like this year's Appalachian state that was, you know, ranked like if a win over Appalachian state, you know, is, is a top 10 moment in your athletic program for a decade. Like then what am I even doing rooting for these programs? Like there's gotta be better than that. So I'm not going to count. I just refuse to. Um, 
the UMass lacrosse team in 2012 was like 15 and 0 at one point, and then they lost in the first round of the tournament to Colgate. I was actually at that game. I would say whatever the regular season was, maybe it was 12 and 0. I don't know. That is definitely in the top 10. That's a that's a significant yeah. accomplishment. Um, and it was three years removed from their 09 title run, so like it generated a lot of buzz. Oh no, it wasn't. That was in, that was oh six the title the run to the title game so excuse me it was six years later and that point means nothing um, so I'll, I'll table that to the side um, UMass women's basketball pretty much abjectly horrific the entire decade UMass softball which was an absolute power for the decade prior there was a famous game and I think it was oh nine. So those wouldn't count, but that went like 15 innings against like Washington, and then they lost, and they would have gone to the College World Series, something like that. But I think that was not that decade. Bennett, was there any good UMass softball when you were there? Um, I remember there was a good pitcher for a year or two while I was there, um, because we I used to do the read the news reports or whatever, and it was always like, oh, by the way. Like this pitcher threw another no hitter. Yeah, there was a girl like named like Ball Schmitter or something. So it was hard to forget the name. But, um, but yeah, there there wasn't anything. It wasn't like a, oh they're making a run to this. Here, I'm pulling up. I'm pulling their, up their schedule. There were 2010. There were 42 10 and one, which I can oh. assume is good. Dude, that's fucking nasty. But they, so- it doesn't look like they made the tournament. And I, I, I somewhat know how uh, college baseball's playoff system works. I have no idea how college softball system works. They made the tournament because it looks like their last. So, so they okay. So they made it in 2012 too. So they made the tournament and then we're like fucking. I mean, that means they've entered the tournament 42 and eight. That's like really good because usually college softball, the way it works is you like lose a bunch if you're in the northeast you lose a bunch of games early in the season to like warm weather teams yeah and you like dominate the atlantic 10 but this they clearly won the league because they beat fordham twice in a in a um yeah so they lose to fordham in the a10 tournament and then beat them two times to to come back and win it uh like two days later um and then they get to the east regional or whatever it was and they lose back to back since double elimination to LIU Post. Not even LIU. Oh, LIU Post. That's my neighborhood, dude. I didn't even realize LIU Post had DU on athletics. Yeah, I. Let's see. I'm pulling them up now. Let's see their athletics. Uh, they're D two for everything else. It looks like that's weird. That's so weird. So LIU Post. And then they lose to BU ten to four to end the season. So in the tournament, so like that would have been. Also, I mean, as of now, they merged with uh, LIU Brooklyn for sports, so they're now fully D one. Weird. Okay, so they were forty two and eight going into into the tournament. So like that's a definite accomplishment. It was their sixth straight tournament appearance. Yeah, they had been really good the decade before. 
but like obviously a very dis and they had this girl Sarah Plord who is yeah yes I I don't know where that name popped into my head from but yes she was a sophomore so then and she 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 led the country in what it was strikeouts and wins while breaking the UMass single season record in both categories so. Put that over there. Sarah Plord's sophomore season, definitely on the list, despite the profound disappointment. I hope this person is not listening. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking up the 2010 playoff. Um, It's okay, Sarah. We don't really care. Um, I mean, we do, but whatever. Okay. There's some, like, serious UMass softball fans. Like, when I was a kid, Danielle Henderson, who was on the Olympic team, was, I I will say this, other than Marcus Camby and maybe Lou Rowe was I didn't I didn't really get so into hockey with Kale McCarr, but Daniel Henderson was the most he remains actually, I will say this, the most dominant UMass athlete I've ever witnessed. Like, first of all, like that was such a unique era in UMass sports history. Like there were thousands of people at those games and watching her. Like she was a national phenomenon. I think she was in Sports Illustrated. She ended up being on like the you know, one of the first maybe the first Olympic team. Unbelievable. But, uh, all right, UMass softball 2011. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't, they lost the conference tournament. And that kind of ended their dominant, their dominance. Cause they were, I don't know when Elaine Sortino died, but it might have been around, oh, no, wait, 2012, they're 38 and 13. They make the tournament. Let's see. They do. They make the tournament that year too, Bennett. Win the league. So they win the league, and they. Oh, made- it's Ortino died in twenty thirteen. By the way. Oh, okay. So that actually okay. So when in thirteen? In August. So after the twenty thirteen season. Did she coach that season? Yes. Okay, so that's emotional. UMass season ends with a one nothing loss to Illinois State in NCAA regional. So let's just basically put. Like, that must have been Sarah Plord's senior year. So let's just say, like, Sarah Plord's career is is in is in the running. Can you write these down? Sarah? Uh, yeah, hold on. Sarah Plord career. What were the other ones? Uh, the obvious one, the obvious two, which were the uh, NCAA. Hockey, hockey run, NCAA tournament, Sarah yeah. Maybe we'll only do five. Um. So Sarah Plord ended her career, it says, um, 11th in the Division I single-season record book, uh, all-time, 1,662 Ks in four years, which placed her eighth at the time she ended her career. That's very impressive. Um, I'm just – just someone else do this because I'm not – Someone has to update the ice hockey section on the UMass Minutemen and Minute Women Wikipedia page uh, because it does not have anything that happened the last two years. And also, it says the UMass hockey team is nicknamed the Mass Attack, and I don't think they're nicknamed the Mass Attack. Anymore. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, uh, women's lacrosse has to get a shout-out. Yeah, shout-out. But, okay, I'm going to draw the line here because – the only sports that can really truly make the top 10 
unless you make a Final Four, okay, are men's and women's basketball, women's softball because they've always competed nationally and it's a legitimate thing, um, football, hockey, lacrosse, I'm saying men's lacrosse. I should count women's lacrosse. There's a case to be made for field hockey's dominance, but I just and I, and this is not a commentary on our culture, but I'm not driving the culture forward in the on this show. I'm kind of reflecting it, and the reality is, women's field hockey and women's lacrosse do not rise to the level of national relevance, such that. Even women's soccer does, by the way. Brianna Scurry would go on and, you know, win the World Cup in 1998. Therefore, UMass women's soccer will forever be somewhat relevant in at least to the point that it could make a top 10 list for this podcast. Women's field hockey and women's lacrosse have not reached that point unless they make a Final Four uh, or a national title game. Because that gets you anyone. That's just a significant enough accomplishment that you just get out of the realm of obscurity, obscurity, and into the realm of like we will give you plaudits. But I, I'm making an executive decision right now. It's not a gendered thing. Um, it's just it's just not there yet. Shouts to softball. Shouts to basketball. Shouts to uh, whatever other women's sport I named. Softball, basketball, soccer, but no, it's not. I'm not putting those other two on. So I, I don't disagree. I'm, I was scrolling through just seeing where they went. They we won a game in the tournament, I think, a couple of years in a row, and one a year they went to the uh, the third round of the tournament. But I don't think they ever made enough of an impact. Now let's look a little bit in terms of the realm of like hires and hiring and firings, like. A lot of people were clamoring for us to say that the biggest moment of the de- of the decade was um, McCutcheon's fire, you know, departure and Bamford's hiring. Um, it's interesting because if you start looking at this conversation as um, kind of a, a assessment of the administrative choices and things like that, like then you're kind of taking it a little bit outside the realm of what we would consider kind of great moments in fan lore, because for example, or rather I should say this, something like the Pat Kelsey thing was one of the most interesting and kind of crazy moments of the decade. But is it like, is it, does it, does it count? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's off the floor. So, I think I want to stick with on-field performance um, just for the sake of, you know, because the other stuff is very interesting to speculate on at some length, but I, I just think you got to draw the line somewhere. So, I mean, what else is there? Men's soccer was great in 08 or 07. If, if hockey can get to the five-overtime game against Notre Dame, I think it's notable. Yeah, it's a great game, yeah. Uh, I would say, but then again, like that's where you're like, well, does Andy Isabella getting 200 and some odd yards against Georgia count in a 63 to 20 something loss or whatever, 67 to whatever, you know, like, I don't know. Does, does 
Does Andy Isabella? You know what? I I think Andy Isabella getting drafted in the second round. That's on my list because even though that's not on the on the field, it, it's momentous. It's a momentous enough occasion for the entire program that, like, I think you got to count it. So if we're getting it down to five, I might put that fifth. Um, I mean, Caddy Lane was drafted, but that that ain't it. Um, I, I do think the UMass basketball NIT run of 2012 was super fun. The win at Drexel, where Bruiser, oh. in, former UMass coach Bruiser, embraced Derek Kellogg. A fan pointed that out. Um, that's really good. But that whole run was electric, and it gave people the excitement that they were going to get to the tournament the next year too. And they didn't, but they got there the year after. And so I think that was the start of something big and arguably in a crazy way. And I never thought I'd say this, but it was more fun than the tournament run because there was no tournament run. It just, once you got to the tournament, there was nothing. And even that 2012 team, one of my great memories of that team was beating Temple in um, Atlantic City. Met some friends at the show that day for the first time. That was really cool. And then they lost. They damn near beat St. Bonaventure. They lost by like four really late um, against Andrew Nicholson, who would go on to they would go on to win the league. So um, I, I do think like that that run was was actually it, it. You can't put it above the 2014 run, but like. In a weird way, looking back, I had a lot more joy as a fan experiencing that run because it was just like more unexpected. There, there wasn't the same pressure on the team. You know, expectations determine so much. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in there in in there somewhere. Um, lacrosse 2012. So we got lacrosse 2012. Andy Isabella. Hockey, hockey's number one. What's what's so? I guess number two. You have to say. I think number two is the win over VCU, and I, and I'll actually combine that. I'll be like the great wins of 2013, 2014. So I'll, it'll be a little bit of a cop out, but I'll count BYU at the Springfield Civic Center. Oh, I'm Jazz, just calling it. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Jazz had like 32 and 15, and it was just bonkers. It was a great game. Electric. And Cats was supposed to sit next to me, and some asshole took his seat. Good, good anecdote. It's a true story. I think Andy Katz. I hate to say this. I don't want to be a jerk, but I think he's always. I, I've kind of. I find him to be sort of chronically overrated. Um, I, I like. It's a, this is an aside. I just think my, my. If you want me to like the sports right, the sport, the national sports writers in college basketball, and I could do an entire show about this. Are maybe the worst in in of any sport in America because and it's not all their fault. It's that outlets have reduced coverage around these things. There's some really good people at the local level, but nationally, outlets don't put a ton of resources toward it. So they have like one guy, and those guys and you know ESPN and CBS Sports they have a few you know whatever, but they end up being more like kind of like publicists and and hype men for the sport in general 
And I think you need people with more of a critical lens. Um, so, so Castle struck me as a very nice guy, but I've never seen him like say much that people don't want known. It's just my, you know, that's just kind of how I see it. But anyway, uh, I mean, he's not like of a Rothstein level of meetings. <laughs> don't get me wrong, uh, or even as bad as you know, Seth Davis, who I find almost essentially completely insufferable. But uh, but anyway. I just never thought he was like, he seems like a really nice dude, but he just doesn't yeah. seem amazing, you know, anyway. So, uh, okay, so I would say BYU, VCU, and GW, those three wins, plus actually the win against New Mexico to start early in the year yeah. in the Charleston tournament, um, those were like thrilling wins that gave you a lot of hope for, you know, where the program was heading. And that Providence win too, fuck, the LSU win. So there was like five or six wins. So I'll say like the great wins of 2013, 2014 as a category or as a, as a, as an item. Yep. That probably goes at number two, number three, and I know you're supposed to do it in reverse order, but number three is probably the 2012, uh, a 10 tournament and NIT run. Uh, you, you probably actually have to realistically. You got to give UMass um, lacrosse's undefeated regular season in 2012 the number three slot. That's very impressive. They rose at one point in the rankings. I want to say they were. They may have been number one. I don't. They were. Yeah, people were saying like, oh, they didn't play a sufficiently good schedule. They're not the real deal, which of course turned out to maybe be true because they lost to Colgate in the first round. But um, be that as it may. That to me is probably sufficient. Reaching number one slot is is very significant. It's not as significant as an NCAA tournament appearance in college basketball. But we'll put that at three. I think Plord's accomplishments are actually probably number four, and number five is that UMass NIT run. How does that sound? You got objections? Uh no. I I think that's pretty good. I mean, I was. Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty legit. I remember not being a lacrosse fan at all in 2012 and and tuning in and keeping attention. And like I said, I remember the name Sarah Plourd. I remember talking about her on news reports, and obviously she was outstanding. So, But boy, Bennett, I got to be honest, that's a pretty bleak decade. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm as – big a proponent of this new athletic administration as as you can be pretty much but the jury's still out in terms of their the jury's not out when it comes to their ability to do everything in their power to generate buzz for the programs and 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 help them you know get to that next sort of national tier when it comes to broadcast rights and and you know all those things they're doing great fan engagement in-game, you know, experience, all that stuff. But the reality is, as you and I and anyone who listens to the show probably understands at an intuitive level, you're assessed on what your head coaches deliver you in the three major sports in particular. And let's be honest, hockey is a distant third from a national vantage point. So in terms of the big two, well, you know, we just don't know yet because McCall's in year three after a really tough year two. 
And, you know, Walt Bell's about to start year two. So even though Bamford has now been there, I think five years, I think this March marks five years. I think he came in like March of 15. So he came basically halfway through the decade. He certainly laid the ground roots and made the hires necessary, I think, to get this ship righted. But, you know, you can't give him an A yet. He's got to get some of these guys to – he's got to get one of those two to deliver. And if he doesn't, he's going to have to bring somebody else in. And if that person doesn't deliver, you know, uh, he may have to find another home himself. It's weird to say that because we're talking in the context of decades now. So I don't want to make it sound in any way like I suggested that, you know, Brian Bamford's on the hot seat. He's not. He's unequivocally not and should not be, and anyone who would say that would be out of their mind. But he is he is a 2021 bad season by Matt McCall and a 2020 and 21 bad season by Walt Bell away from feeling the heat, I should say. You know, he would still have another year after that, you know, assuming he wanted to let Matt get a fifth year and assuming Bell got it going in his fourth. But we might be looking at three straight bad years for football. And if McCall doesn't get it done next year, certainly the year after in basketball, then people will start raising questions about the athletic administration, which is, you know, fair. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen that way. I have enough confidence in McCall and I think, you know, just way too early to say on Bell one way or the other, but, you know, I think the tendency to assume that, see, I guess the knock on McCutcheon, besides the fact that he made just wretched hires in hockey and football, so that's a those are knocks that, you know, make sense. The knock, I think, is that, like, he had no interest in – there was zero interest in engaging with the fans. There was there was zero, like – it just never felt like they that, – that he gave a shit about FaceTime and – you know, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter. But it, 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 the thing about this athletic administration is, like, they've been so in lockstep with the fan base that I think that that's made it easier for the fan base in turn to root for them. And, um, But in terms of overall success, other than the Carvel hire, which was outstanding and should not in any way be discounted, you can't really say that, McCutcheon was so much worse that, well, wait, let's see. He hired Charlie Molnar and he hired Kevin Morris. So actually, yes, yes, you can. But in basketball, he hired Travis Ford and he hired um, Derek Kellogg, who did get you to a tournament, you know, like, so I don't think basketball-wise – McCutcheon was an unmitigated disaster. In most other realms, yes, he was. But it's not... I would take 2000 to 2009 over 2009, 2010 to 2019. Because 2000 to 2009, 
I know this is a little before you came into the fold, Bennett, but men's soccer made a Final Four. Men's lacrosse made a national championship game. Um, a deep NIT run for hoops. And softball had some really great you know, tournament appearances. Uh, football made a national title game. And you know, a couple other FCS playoffs. So like, to me, you know, that was definitely a better era. Now, of course, Bamford wasn't here the first half of this decade. So he, you have to like the big question, I think on Bamford and and this administration will be, can they in his, if he's here 10 years, will that 10 years be better than the 10 years prior? And I think that that's trending in the right direction. And also, he's done a really nice job at hiring in less high-profile sports and changing the culture. So, yeah, I don't want to discount that. But I don't think it's quite as – I don't think always that some of the narrative about McCutcheon's, McCutcheon v. Bamford is maybe totally fair. I think Bamford's a lot better, but maybe not. Anyway, I'm 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 getting tired. What do you got? No, I I I agree. I find it so tough to look at like an AD's impact. Um, but yeah, like you said, I missed most of the time before. But I, I mean, they've been they haven't been outstanding if, with a couple rare exceptions. I think in in the main. Money sports, I guess, would be the term, but like in in, in those, and they they were very good in lacrosse, but they were good in lacrosse before he came to like there were or women's lacrosse, right, so right. Like I couldn't tell you about the the coaches on the the lower the lower side. I can say I know uh, Verdi, who's the women's basketball coach, is very well liked. And they're having a good start to the year, I think. Let me double check. But yeah, well, uh, they had that but, Astros to uh, to, uh, to Merrimack, but they've gotten it together since. Yeah, uh, well, since so, then. Yeah, go ahead. Since then, they've won two, four, six straight, and nine out of ten. Or, yeah, nine out of ten. They're nine and three at the moment. So do you have anything else you would have added to the top five? Um, no, there's not, there's not much there. I, you could do like you, you talked about Andy Isabel going in the second round. I'm fine with doing Andy Isabella season or Tajay Sharp season, but I, I can't put them over any of the other things on this list. Yeah. So it's plored. Wait, so five is the NIT run four is plored. Three is lax. Two is men's hoops. Fourteen and uh, one is hockey. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. With the with the honorable mentions being Isabella being drafted in the second round. I mean, I don't think Sharp's being being drafted in the fifth round is like that is a top five. Moment. No, his his just performance for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I was gonna say like wide receiver performance in otherwise atrocious era of football is kind of like an honorable mention, you know, category. Yeah. He, I mean, he, 
once Whipple came in, he had back-to-back years with basically 1,300 yards. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, no, he was fucking awesome. Um, I think that's – is there anything else that, like, merits um, merits coverage? Uh, nothing comes to mind. No. All right. We could do the UMass Twitter stuff now, but I'm getting really tired. My kid's probably going to start screaming soon. That maybe is best left for UMass Twitter itself. Um, yeah. Because believe it or not, there are a host of listeners of this program who don't know anything about that sphere. Uh, sucks to be them. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, from all of us here at the UMass Basketball Podcast, Andrew Callagy, wherever he is, a.k.a. A. Kalagi for longtime listeners, for five college movers and all that they do for the Pioneer Valley and beyond, for I don't even know. You're all lovely people. Well, not all of you. Um, UMass Twitter continues to bring great joy to my life and I'm sure others. There's been talk of a t-shirt. Let's get that off the ground. Lots to come in 2020. Thanks for listening. As Cal would say, love you. I'm out. <laughs>